Uh, welcome back to One Step Beyond. My name is Aram Arslanian. I am a therapist and CEO of an organization called Cadence Leadership and Communication. We work with organizations throughout North America on their leadership and how they communicate. So today on our show, we've got our guest, Billy Bones. Billy is a great guy that runs a vinyl pressing plant called Clampdown. Clampdown not only is part of reviving an industry that had almost gone away, they're also looking at doing things in a more sustainable way. And when you think of vinyl records, you don't necessarily think of sustainability. So this is a really cool conversation that lets us look at the lens of an old traditional industry, but through a modern eye. All right, everyone, let's get to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about sustainability and environmental innovation. And we have got our guest, Billy Bones, who's going to be sharing his really unique approach to pressing vinyl records. Now you've heard me talk about this before. Uh, I am a collector of things and have been pretty much my whole life. So I collect watches, I collect sneakers, and I'm a huge vinyl collector. I've got tons of records um, at my office, and I've pretty much since I was 15 years old been building up a record collection. And then over time, you know, you get rid of it, and then you build it back up, and you get rid of it. But I've had a real love affair with vinyl ever since I was a little kid. And so for those of you who don't know, there was a massive resurgence in creating vinyl records again started I guess about 20 years ago or so and it's gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and pressing plants which had essentially gone extinct have started coming back up so Billy has established a new pressing plant and has done it from a perspective of being sustainable and environmental which is really cool so we're going to dig into that today and also just touch base about his real interesting past you know the other businesses he's built and his take on how you can build a cool business from a punk perspective in a way that's respectful of the environment so billy welcome to the show hey all right so um billy bones i want to start with tell us about your last name because it's actually your last name bones is now your name yeah so it's that's my legal last name when um when i was born I was Jordan Luke McQueen Arnold. So I had, I was born with four names okay. <laughs> and, um, 20 years ago, I used to play in a band that was all about being a pirate. We were called the pirates mm-hmm. and uh, a friend gave me the name Billy Bones for the band. And so that was my, my rock and roll name. And then when I got married, it didn't seem right to make my wife be an Arnold. So when she took on a, her new name, when we got married, I took on a new one. We both just took the last name Bones. So I added Billy to the front of my name and Bones to the last of my name. So my full legal name is Billy Jordan Luke McQueen Arnold Bones. That just rolls right off the tongue, man. <laughs> it's in my um, passport. They had to put in an extra page because it sort of <laughs> circles around the page. That's amazing, man. All right. So tell us, uh, tell us about what you do. So... Um, for work, I uh, I run Clampdown Record Pressing. Mm-hmm. We've been going since uh, July 
of last year. So we're a brand new company. We're in March now, so not going a full year yet. Um, I press records for artists, bands, labels, uh, from a lot from here in Vancouver, but a lot from um, around uh, so far North America too. Okay. So LA and Seattle and Winnipeg and Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I do for work. Mm-hmm. Uh, for kicks, I like riding motorcycles. Mm-hmm. I like playing pinball. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like playing rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So I, I play guitar in a motorcycle themed band called the Vicious Cycles. <laughs> and and I, I play with you know, my best friends. So we, we're not the young kids that are about to turn it into something fancy. Mm-hmm. But we have a really good time on the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I'm a, a, a dad. I've got two young boys. Mm-hmm. Um, probably will not talk about them much, and they'll be happier for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So you started Clampdown. Yeah. That's a pretty interesting move. So how did you come to that? So if you want to start, like, where you grew up, and just tell us the story from there, like, because I believe you grew up in Saskatchewan, right? Yeah. Okay, let's hear it. Right from the beginning all the way up to Clampdown. Okay, well, yeah, I'll be brief. I, I won't really. <laughs> uh, so as a kid, so I, I grew up in these tiny towns. Um, one, one town is called Pangman, Saskatchewan. Wow. Uh, 200 people there. When I, when I first moved there, uh, no paved roads. Uh, eventually they paved Main Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up, my dad was a storyteller he was always telling stories but he grew up as a greaser Mm -hmm. so i grew up listening to early rock and roll but i would go to my grandparents house in another tiny town and uh in their basement they had an old record player and the basement was kind of dark and and as a little kid it was scary for me Mm -hmm. going to this dark basement and put on they had sort of rock and roll compilations from the 50s and uh I remember um, Detroit, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels song, um, Devil with the Blue Dress On, mm. would come on. And it was the greatest and kind of scary because I was a little kid and it's a song about a devil. Right, right. But this song would come on. and But that feeling of being in just kind of like rock and roll felt dangerous to me as a little kid. And it was super attractive from... The moment I can remember anything, I remember thinking rock and roll is pretty cool. All right. And so, and, and so my experience with rock and roll started with vinyl records. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always collected them. The first vinyl record I bought for myself was um, Doctor and the Medics doing a cover of Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky. So mm-hmm. seven inch record. And I don't know if you know Doctor and the Medics, but I think maybe they were Toronto. Mm-hmm. And uh, big, crazy hair and makeup and just fantastic weirdos. And, uh, but it, since, since I was a kid, I've collected rock and roll records. Mm-hmm. And when you're a little kid in the 80s, in the 70s in Saskatchewan, and you start hearing about punk rock, it's this thing that it's completely alien. Yeah. You, there's no one within an hour's drive who really knows what it is. Maybe... Um, when I, when I was in the city one day, I picked up a Thrasher magazine or something. And so you're, you're reading and seeing punk rock, but it's kind of this crazy, scary thing that's outside. But I was attracted to it immediately before I understood what it was. Right. And so 
all through my life, I've collected records without really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to university in Kamloops. And uh, uh, so I, when I moved there, I started meeting these punk rock kids that were going to university with me and uh, go to their shows. My first punk rock show, I was working at um, Pizza Hut and friends were playing with their band, the Disfigurines. And I wanted to go see the show and it was sold out. So I had to, I broke in through a bathroom window at <laughs> whatever hall, whatever hall it was, the Odd Fellows or something hall. And, uh, and the bathroom window was uh, backstage. So I was, my first punk rock show, and I, I'd heard, cause my, my dad, I, my dad was a storyteller and he told me what he knew about punk rock. And that was that these guys had knives or, or like razor blades in their shoes and uh, they would cut you. <laughs> and so that's sort of what I think. I don't know what punk rock is exactly, but I'm pretty excited about finding out. And I, so I break in through this bathroom window and now I'm backstage and I'm out of my comfort zone because I don't really know what's going on. I have to sneak from backstage, go past the bouncer that's sort of guarding the door. Hold on a second. Yeah. But in your comfort zone was breaking in the backstage. <laughs> but once you're in there, you're out of your comfort zone? Uh, yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. But, All right. So we've established yeah. breaking and entering was within the comfort zone. Well, so I, and I haven't broken into a lot of places. <laughs> and as a kid, my dad taught me how to break into cars. Okay. Because he, at one point, was a repo man. Okay. So I knew how to break into cars. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I haven't broken into a lot of places. Okay. There's a, if you ever go to Berlin uh-huh. and you go to Tufelsberg, mm-hmm. There's a, it's like this mountain that's built on a trash heap from the wars there. It's all the concrete and rubble and everything. And, and at the top of the mountain is um, a spy station built by the Americans. Mm-hmm. It's like a big tower and there's a geodesic dome on the top of it. Mm-hmm. You can, there's three rows of barbed wire fence to keep you out, but it's not so difficult to get in. And you can climb into this you climb the mountain, go into this tower, climb the top of the tower, and you're in this crazy geodesic dome, and you can see all of Berlin, and it was made as like a listening station. So you, you snap your fingers, and the sound reverberates around the room for like a minute. And from up there, you're looking out at Berlin, and you can see the cops driving up the mountain, and you just have to know how to time it. And when they get to the top of the mountain, you run down and out the back and down the backside of the mountain, and it works out fine. But I've barely broken into anywhere, but I guess I broke into the club to see my first punk show through the bathroom window, and I, and I guess I broke into the Tufelsberg place. <laughs> but I can't think of a lot of other places I've broken into. Well, you know, you've certainly painted a picture so far. I'm, this has been a good story. So, Disfigurines, yeah. you're backstage, you got to get past the bouncer. Yeah, so, um, and I think maybe... Maybe the smugglers were playing that show. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I, I just I pop out of the backstage like I belong there, and and bouncer looks at me, but I just walk past, and and I, now I'm, I'm in the crowd at my first punk show, and it's one of those really fun, really electric shows where everybody's dancing, and the crowd is a part of the show, not just standing around looking cool or something. So I think that show is part of the story of me sort of wanting to be involved in music somehow. So after that, really shortly after that, I started, I, I just learned to play guitar in around that time and started um, hanging out with other people that 
played instruments and now I'd sort of met all these punk rock kids in Kamloops and we started making bands and eventually I ended up here in Vancouver. Uh, all along the way in there, so I'm talking about music and rock and roll and punk rock, but um, in one of the little towns I lived in in Saskatchewan, I think I was in grade 10 or 11 and I put in a bid to run the bus depot. Mm-hmm. So it's a tiny town. So this one had a thousand or 2,000 or maybe 5,000 people, I don't know, but still a small town. Mm-hmm. And so I put in a bid and, and I took over the local bus depot. So before school, I would get up and go sell tickets and freight. And then the bus only came twice a day. So I'd have to go there before school and after school. But I sort of ran my own little business. Mm-hmm. And um, all throughout most of my life, I've ran my own little business. So screen printing or um, house painting or something. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we did Sparrow Guitars, um, I guess that's, that's 15 years ago mm-hmm. now. But uh, I've always run businesses, but I'm not actually a capitalist mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. I just have sort of am born into this capitalist world, and, and now i got to feed these kids. So <laughs> I, I'm doing my best. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was up to me, I would just, in Kamloops, when I could, I just lived in the van down by the river and uh, down beside the skateboard park and had my records in, in the back of my van. Mm-hmm. And I love that kind of thing. But once you start having kids, you really have to have a few more dollars coming in. Mm-hmm. So I had to start taking um, work a little more seriously, trying to have a business that would provide a little more than lunch for tomorrow sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's a long it's a long story to try to figure out from the beginning to where you but are. But this now. is a great story, man, because yeah. like I'll just say, and for anyone listening, like, you know, we've got a lot of people from all sorts of different business backgrounds. Um, I don't know how many of those people collect records or why they care, but what they definitely would care about is innovation, sustainability, someone trying new things and the story behind that. Cause it's a cool story. Like real specifically when you're talking about, Oh, as a little kid, I, you know, I put in the bid to do this thing, but why, why mm-hmm. did you do that? Like, what got you thinking about I should run my own business when you were in grade 10? Yeah, I've got no idea. My, so my dad was an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. um, not an, an incredibly successful one, but he was always doing something. Mm-hmm. So he'd, he'd, uh, he and I would go on a trip and he'd drive. He had been collecting wagon wheels and jukeboxes from the countryside in Saskatchewan in kind of antiques and fill a van. And then we'd drive down to... LA where he had contacts there that he'd sell all this stuff to basically to Hollywood to for props or whatever. Uh-huh. And I remember I'd tag along and then I'd go to the there were these sunglass warehouses you could go to and buy like Oakley knockoffs or whatever and so I'd buy I'd have saved up maybe as a kid I had a couple hundred bucks so I'd buy boxes of sunglasses and I'd bring them home and sell them to the kids in my neighborhood. For whatever reason I've always thought that's what you do. Mm-hmm. You, um, cause you can, you can go and get a job and, um, and I've done that sometimes and there's periods in my life where it's been really great to go and punch a clock and take a check. Mm-hmm. But I've always got an idea for something else that could be done. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I told you I like motorcycles. Yeah. So I buy old, junky motorcycles and um i'm not a great mechanic but i fix them myself and when they break i i know when when most people's motorcycle breaks they think oh 
I wonder where the motorcycle shop is that will fix it. Or if they take it a step further and they're going to fix it themselves, they think, I wonder where you get the parts for this. But for whatever reason, my mind doesn't do that. And maybe, maybe it comes down to how many, what you had for resources growing up. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But when my motorcycle breaks, I look around the room and see what's within reach that I could fix the motorcycle with. So consequently, my motorcycles break a lot. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes the, the things I fix the motorcycle with don't, don't uh, last all that long. And, right. But sometimes they're great. Right. I, I was going camping mm-hmm. with a bunch of friends and my wife and our boys are already at the campsite, but I had to work for the day. So I'm riding out in the evening on my motorbike and it's only, I forget, 45 minutes away mm-hmm. from town. But I get on the highway and, uh, and all of a sudden my motorcycle won't run. It stops. So I, I pull over and I realize a, a seal has blown on the shifter shaft mm-hmm. and all the oil has leaked out and I don't have any oil. And even if I did, the shifter shaft seal's blown. So I always ride with tools, so I take it apart and I cut the fuel line shorter and used it to push the shifter seal back where it was supposed to. But then I still didn't have any oil, so I found a piece of cardboard in the ditch and with the used oil that it all spilled out, I wrote oil on this piece of cardboard with a question mark and I just stood at the side of the road and held up this sign that said oil with a question mark and within five minutes, someone had stopped and pulled over and um, donated enough oil that I could ride my bike to the campsite. But I think that's sort of, that's kind of the way I think about everything mm-hmm. is uh, if something has gone wrong, I'm not usually waiting for someone else to fix it or wishing that I had a, a shop or the right tools. I just, I instantly look around to see what's at hand and how you could adapt it to make it work. Okay. So in the story, we're in Vancouver now, and you're going between some jobs where you're taking a check and other things where you've started something. And you, you know, you've got a young family, you're building up. So tell us how we come to Clamp Down. So um, I'm a record nerd. I, I like records a lot. Um, I, I mean, I, there's people with bigger record collections than me. So I don't, I don't put a ton of money into my record collection. If, if there's a record I really want, then I might go after it, but... I don't have um, bad brains, acetates, or anything like that. <laughs> but I, I, I do like records a lot. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm working this, this job now wearing a suit and tie, which is not, um, I was not born to wear a suit and tie. Mm-hmm. And um, at the time, I'd thought about pressing records for a lot of years. But in order to do it, I would have had to buy an old record press. And I would have had to fix it all the time. And I know that the way I fix my motorcycles, if I do that with a record press, uh, it's going to be broken down half the time and I'm not going to be pressing records half the time. So I'd never taken that leap to start this company. Mm -hmm. Uh, In, I think, 2017, a company in Toronto started producing brand new record pressing equipment. And they were the first, I think they were the first company since 83 or 86 to build new record pressing equipment. So because they were building new equipment, it meant that if I could figure out how to get enough money to buy their equipment, I could be pressing records on equipment that wouldn't break down all the time. Mm -hmm. So that put the bug in my head that it might be something a guy could do. So uh, I'm, I'm working the suit and tie job 
and starting to talk to my friends about, you know, do you think this is a good idea? And, and we'd all, m- my friends and I are all record nerds. And so I'm trying to talk to other people outside of this record nerd circle to make sure that other people are, are seeing the same kind of vinyl revival. And it didn't matter who I talked to at the time. It could be someone in their 90s. And if you say anything about vinyl records, they said, oh, yeah, I hear they made a comeback recently. Like It was a huge story that everybody knew. So I was feeling confident like the market was there. I was feeling like the equipment was there. And then I just had to figure out a way to put the money together. But I was talking to my mom. I remember really specifically on my lunch break from my current job. And I was talking to my mom on the phone. And and she said, life's pretty short. If, um, if there's something you really want to do, then maybe you should do it. And I just that was enough encouragement for me to think, well, if my mom thinks I should do it, I should probably do this thing. So um, then I started doing more research about the startup costs and um, some more research about financing that might be available. And before I'd ever been in a room with a record press, because I still had never actually seen a record being made. Mm-hmm. And I, I watched YouTube videos and I thought I understood the process a bit. But yeah, I... I put together enough financing through friends and family to put a down payment with this company Toronto on a record pressing machine. There's different components, but enough to get them started on all of that. And then it was um, yeah, just a matter of raising enough capital to get the doors open and tons of learning. So I didn't know a lot about like how you press a record. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the company that I bought the equipment from, they took me in for a week with Norman my uh, so I've got an employee named Norman mm-hmm. and he and I he's my production guy and he and I went to uh, Toronto for a week where they trained us mm-hmm. and that's basically all I knew and then when, when the equipment showed up they sent a guy out for a week and he trained us again and then from there it's a whole lot of um, learning so some people will say that something can't be done and so we'll have to experiment until we figure out a way to do it but I think we've found ways to do three or four things that people said, yeah, you can't do that. It doesn't work. All right. Yeah. So climb down. How's it doing? Uh, really good. Um, I looked at, because um, we're, we're a small company and I do a ton of, I'm sweeping the floors and ordering everything. And I think at any given time, I've got 200 relationships that I'm having to hold together. Mm. Uh, and so I finally have, Put a little time into the numbers recently, which uh, I intended to be way on top of from the beginning, but it got pushed. But I, I made a little spreadsheet showing the number of orders and the value, and and the curve is right. Like everything is moving the direction that it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Especially this last month, our orders doubled in in the month, and so that's really good and and stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a fire last month in a plant in uh, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, this plant makes vinyl discs that are the, they're master blank discs that are the start of the record making process mm-hmm. that uh, a lathe cutting engineer, a mastering engineer cuts your, your masters and then those are turned into stampers. Mm-hmm. And there's only two factories that make those blank discs in the world. And the one in California had an 85% market share and they burned to the ground uh, last month. So, Almost all record pressing companies in the world are reliant on, especially in North America, are reliant on this company that just doesn't exist right now. Uh, 
most record pressing plants use lacquer blanks. Mm-hmm. In the 80s in Europe, there was a machine invented that could cut, instead of into lacquer, could cut into copper disc. So there were, you know, the big European pressing plants used copper masters instead of lacquer masters. And there's still six plants in Europe that can do copper masters. And there's two of the machines in North America that can do the copper masters. They're called DMM masters. And those two machines are owned by the Scientologists. <laughs> it sounds like a, a, it sounds, it doesn't sound like a true story, mm-hmm. but I've had, I've had it backed up by two people that are in a position to know. Mm-hmm. And, um, the Scientologists have bought these DMM record lathes and they're cutting everything L. Ron Hubbard ever said or, or wrote, I don't know which one, onto uh, basically copper records and they're putting them in a bunker somewhere in sealed containers with these uh, turntables that are wind up so you don't need any electricity and there's no rubber parts on the turntables. So everything L. Ron Hubbard ever said and Scientology will survive when most of the rest of humanity won't. That is so sick. Yeah. If Dave, you better start doing that with me. I need copper. <laughs> I need copper recordings of everything I've done, including this interview. I need it on special turntables. If people don't do this, I'm going to be very upset. Okay. So how did that end up with your ordering orders doubling? Oh, so those, I don't think those two are related. Okay. But, uh, at the same time as my, um, as my business was really starting to grow. So people are, people know that I'm here now and that I've made some records that they've seen and touched and heard and they're, they're satisfied that oh, these are great sounding records mm-hmm. that look great. So they're confident to put orders in with me now. Mm-hmm. So as I hit that stride, this factory in California burned down. Right. So I can get some copper blanks if I go through, there's three shops in Europe that'll sell to me. Mm-hmm. I, I can go that way. It's a little more pricey, but it's not going to take me down. All right. And then there's the other place in the world that makes those lacquer discs is in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are not taking any new customers on. But they're, I, so I went to Japan for my first time in October. Uh-huh. And we visited friends in the Kizo Mountains, like four hours outside of Tokyo. Uh-huh. And uh, they live in this really tiny town. And... You know, if you're in Tokyo and you've got sort of my complexion, uh, nobody notices. Mm. But in the Kizo Mountains, uh, it was really weird to see somebody from North America. Like the school emptied out to come and see the Western people. Wow. Yeah. And anyways, this factory that makes the other lacquer discs is in Japan in the Kizo Mountains in a tiny town. So I called my friend and got her to bug them to see well she's kind of their neighbor maybe she can get us a supply but it's really tight and locked up right now okay so we got clamped down you're doing good you got the Mm -hmm. company established yeah where does sustainability fall in so i um i really care about the world continuing the world will be just fine Mm -hmm. but uh it seems to me that if we keep living the way we're living, uh, humanity won't be just fine. Uh, like the earth will survive and it'll knock us off it eventually if we keep doing the things we're doing uh, to our environment. So the world's going to self-correct is what you're saying. And like the world will continue, yeah. but it will find a way to self-correct to get rid of us. Yeah. You know, we're kind of the parasite. Okay. And, and part of that 
is plastic, mm-hmm. I, I think. And so my job, what I do every day, I go into work and I take plastic and I turn it into a product and I add plastic to the world, basically. Right. And, and it's kind of a heartbreak to do that. Mm-hmm. And I satisfy myself by saying it's not single-use plastic. Mm-hmm. Hopefully it's, um, it's multi-use plastic. And, and that's completely different from, from single-use plastic. Well, if the band doesn't suck, then yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. And, th- and there, are, there is the odd record that comes through that I think, maybe this is single-use plastic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but everybody's got their thing, right? Right. right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, so anyways, I would love to find a replacement for PVC. Because I take PVC pellets, uh, put them in a hopper, and they get melted into pucks and press into records. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was listening to... The, the radio a few months back and i heard an interview with a, a company from here in bc that makes a type of pvc out of wood hmm. so i don't understand how that works um but i got a hold of the company mm-hmm. and they say they think they'll be able to supply me sometime inside the next year with a, a product that i can be testing to see if if that could be my replacement for pvc it's it's biodegradable uh, so this part is all talk mm-hmm. as far as um, replacing PVC with a, a type that's made from wood, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem ridiculous or crazy. These, these folks are capable of making it now. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they'll do is put sort of a container sized uh, unit outside of say a factory that makes furniture and they'll take the wood scraps from that factory and somehow they turn that into a type of a PVC. Okay. Yeah. So right now, that's kind of like a, a thing you're you're dreaming of. You've yeah. got it, you're at, aspiring towards. But you know, we've got a we've got a system that when people think of vinyl records, we're not really thinking about the environmental impact. It's like, oh, right. you know, vinyl's cool. Yeah. But there is an impact, and so outside of just the actual physical product, there's all sorts of other impacts. So what are they? Uh, so in the manufacture of the product, um, this so I, I've got an advantage by it's a twofer here there's uh, two components to it uh when i bought my record pressing equipment from viral they had this innovation where instead of pressing records using uh, steam heat to heat the molds that flatten the pucks they use hot water Mm -hmm. and they uh, the hot water is made in this little machine and so steam you get steam heat and, and every record pressing plant in the world, except for, I think there's four of us that have these machines now that, that are steamless. Mm-hmm. So you get steam heat by burning gas. You, you burn gas to heat water, create steam. So I'm not burning any gas to uh, run my press. Uh, I'm using hydroelectricity. And so um, I use a lot of electricity because this little machine takes a lot of it, but it's, it's hydro. So it's, uh, I think in BC we're 97 or some percent hydroelectricity mm-hmm. so i'm i'm not burning any coal or or using nuclear power to create the electricity that makes the records and i think so the of the the four of these machines that i know are in production around the world uh, i think they're in chicago or detroit and alberta so places that burn coal to create electricity so i believe i'm the only record pressing plant in the world that's not burning gas or coal to make records mm. So that's, that's like one of the ways that you're working on sustainability. So you're looking at like the fuel that really like basically allows you to get into the pressing of it. But what else, like if we're thinking about environmental impact, what do you, what else you've been able to mitigate? Uh, 
So that that part is the the real like that's what we're doing right now. Mm-hmm. We are not burning any coal or gas while everyone else has to. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but then maybe it's just because we're in BC. But a, a lot of um, clients that come to me say, "Yeah, I want to press a record, and I want to do it as an environmentally friendly, sustainable way as possible." Mm-hmm. And me playing in dumb little punk bands for the last twenty years, I know lots of other people in dumb little punk bands. And uh, and most of us have a uh, hundred or two hundred or three hundred old records under our beds somewhere, and so uh, like that people haven't bought from our old bands. Yeah, yeah, and and, and no one is ever going to buy from our old bands. Yeah. We're not all of a sudden going to sell uh, these two hundred copies of of our high school band. There's no, there's no, there's no like audience. There's no market for that. And in fact, I had because I used to run a record label when I was younger. I had. I don't know, three or 400 of this. I'd put out a band from Europe that had said like, oh, we promise we're going to tour on this LP. Like we're coming to North America. And they literally toured every single other place on the face of the planet and never came to the US. And yeah, there's a lot of money to put on an LP. So I always held on to them hoping someday I'd be able to sell these things. But I had like three or 400. I think I sold 75 copies of this band. Yeah. Uh, 75 copies and the rest were sitting at poor Dave's house until his partner, Michael Ann was like, these absolutely need to leave. The, why are we holding on to our Rams records yeah. for like 10 years that nobody is ever going to buy? So please tell me, what can I yeah. do with these records? So, so you've got a couple choices. All you right. can put them in the landfill mm-hmm. and it will destroy your soul. Yes. Or what we've been doing is it will chop out the center label. And I've got a, a granulator, so I regrind it, and then I can use that uh, regrind as the PVC that I'm pressing records with. So they have to be. I can't go to the thrift store and pick up, you know, a hundred random records. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll be dirty, and and the the PVC in those records will be a different formulation in every record. So right. its melting point is going to be different. But if you've got a hundred or more of the same record, I can take that and. Um, I'll have to play with the settings, the temperature settings on my press, but I can figure out the right melting point for it and I can turn that into new records. So the, there's a local label called Mint Records mm-hmm. and, and they've really been interested in uh, a sustainable record as, as they can produce. So uh, they've brought me a, a couple things from their back catalog that they knew had had, had their peak sometime in the past. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm doing a run for them where at least part of the run is on these uh, records that they brought in. So, and so it's a recycled, it's a recycled record basically. Yeah. So one is like, you know, the method that you're using to fuel your process. But second is like, you're looking at ways where you can recycle something that has largely been unrecyclable before. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to tell you this band from Europe that I put out who I'm friends with them. Yeah. <laughs> They're nice guys. But they really like screwed me here on this on this whole thing. Yeah. I'm going to bring you all these records. They're yours. I'm going to give them to you. I'd like you to recycle them. And so they were a straight edge band. Okay. I want you to use that for the most boozy band that you've ever <laughs> like. Wh- whoever the band is that consumes the most booze, like right. use the records for that. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So you got you got a couple you got a couple ways right now that you're focusing on sustainability. And something I like about your story, just in general, um, you know since I've been aware of you as just uh, someone who's always doing businesses, you're always kind of looking for that next opportunity. Like you're like, you know, when you were a kid and you're like, Hey, I'm going to put in this bid to run the bus, um, the bus stand. 
you know, I know you did Squire guitars for a while and there's a lot of people I know who um, did some work for you in that. And you're always kind of pushing these things, but it seems like you're trying to do these things from like a cool perspective. Like you're not just being like, Oh, there's, here's a opening in the marketplace. I can just cram a bunch of stuff in there. There seems to be like a focus on, well, how can I do something that's cool and meaningful, but also is like not going to take or hurt anything. So tell me about that focus. Uh, I think at the core of it, I want to be happy. Mm. And uh, that's a, a, a pretty selfish sort of driving point. But if I, I'm honest, I think that I do what I do because I'm pursuing whatever makes me happy. Yeah. And and I'm not super happy if I'm just punching a clock. And uh, I am happy if I'm creating something that I see a value in. When we first were starting this company... In my mind, I thought a little bit the opposite of how it's turned out. I thought, um, I want to press, if I'm going to make a go of this thing and be able to press all the the cool records that I want to press, I'm going to have to be a a fairly generic company and and try to suppress myself, my own personality. And uh, I thought, I'm going to call it Vancouver Vinyl. And uh, and then I'll press all the... um, the choirs and and um, folk and hip hop and and whatever and and there won't be a, a barrier to entry for someone that's not like me to come and get their records pressed and uh, and so I went to register the name Vancouver Vinyl and it turned out that was taken and so I was a little bit bummed out and my wife said well, why don't you call it Clampdown because so the Clash they're they're probably my favorite band I love that they made great music that had uh, uh, a message behind it. Mm-hmm. So anyways, my wife said, why don't we call it Clampdown? And in that moment, I threw away this idea of of trying to keep my personality out of the company. And I thought, well, I'll just, I'll go the other way and um, just allow myself to be whatever I want to be in the marketing and in the, the public presentation of the company. Mm-hmm. And I'm really happy that it worked out that way mm-hmm. if I had. So I, I like the idea of, of producing a really professional product. I think I only sell records if I make really great records. Mm-hmm. If I don't make great records, nobody will want to get records through me. So quality of product is a huge principle in everything mm-hmm. we do, but I want to be happy every day. So when we're doing the marketing and the social media, some Folks might think that my um, the presentation is not very professional. Mm-hmm. We uh, Norman and I on our trip to Toronto for the training, we got stranded in uh, Hamilton for a week, mm-hmm. not a week, a day, and uh, and it's so a big difference there. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, but I love I, we really enjoyed Hamilton, <laughs> but I love that that expression where uh, uh, I spent a week in Hamilton one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Hamilton was fantastic. Okay. <laughs> but uh, so anyways, we, we realized we, we flew on swoop because I'm not a rich guy. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so we're stranded in Hamilton for a day and we decided that uh, our, our band has this sponsorship through Brixton Clothing Company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they, for the last 10 years, have given us free clothing mm-hmm. four times a year. And they've never asked anything from us. Uh-huh. Uh, once they asked us to play a party that they were throwing, and, but they paid us really well. Uh-huh. But so 
I don't do a lot of corporate endorsements, mm-hmm. but I really love them. They've, mm-hmm. They have given stuff to me for the last 10 years and they never ask for anything. If I, if I may. Yeah. I wear three kinds of hats. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I wear baseball hats. Yeah. I wear toques. Yeah. Or for Americans, uh, what do you call it? A knitted cap? A beanie. A beanie. Stocking cap. A stocking, stocking cap, yeah. as Dave, our engineer, says. Yeah. But the other one is I wear like, you know, kind of like a lad's cap, like, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I, I wear Brixton hats. They make a great, they make a great hat. I think they call it the yeah. hooligan yep. hat. Yeah, they do. Yeah. I tried some of the other hats, but I got to tell you, I, you know, I started heading, heading into like ska territory and yeah. I had to back off yeah. like pretty heavily. So I forget how I got to them, but oh yeah. So we're in Hamilton mm-hmm. and it turned out we'd both brought uh, a Brixton ski mask mm-hmm. because uh, we knew it was going to be cold. That sounds terrifying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, we had 24 hours in the hammer. Mm-hmm. If you're from Hamilton, they call it the hammer. So we just went around to all the record shops and any place we thought was interesting or fun. And we put on our, our ski masks and took, pictures and put them up on social media Mm -hmm. and there's one where we're in the hotel hot tub at night and uh so i i filmed us um going under the water in in the hot tub it just sort of both of us looking at the camera going straight down Mm -hmm. and then on my computer i reversed it and put in slow motion so we both like arise out of the hot tub water in these bricks and ski masks but all day long we were on social media uh, with the hashtag 24 hours in the hammer Mm And so I know a lot of people for their businesses, media wouldn't put a picture of themselves in a hot tub wearing a ski mask <laughs> coming out of the water. There are, there are those people in business that, mm-hmm. that wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But because of the world that I'm in, mm-hmm. I can get away with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I can have fun. I can put up pictures of Norman pressing records wearing a horse head yeah. and, uh, and I can have fun every day doing this thing that I love. Because really what I've made, I've made my own little sweatshop. Mm-hmm. I go in and I do manual labor, moving bits of plastic around and putting them in in bits of cardboard. Mm-hmm. But we get to have a lot of fun when we do it. That's a long story for me to say. I was going to sort of suppress my personality, mm-hmm. thinking I had to in order to do business. Mm-hmm. But we've decided to go the other way and... Just be weirdos mm-hmm. if we want to be. And uh, and I don't think it's hurting anything. I think it, it ends up people sort of share and comment and, and enjoy us mm-hmm. being ourselves instead of trying to be somebody else. 100%, man. And that's uh, a ton of what Cadence is built on. Is uh, You know, I, I used to work in a company where my boss was always critiquing everything about like who I am and how I came across. At the same time, I was like very successful in what I was doing within the company. And one day I just thought, I've had enough of this, man. I'm I'm going to go start my own company. And part of what Cadence is all about is just like representing me, like just being me and the work that I do from the perspective of a guy who's was well, a therapist, who is a who is a registered therapist, but also coming from the perspective of a guy playing in punk bands. And I really feel like being authentic, being who you are, that's part of your value proposition. Yeah. So if we're hitting clamp down, and you know, I've been on the website, I've uh, I've checked it all out. I think it looks cool, but of course I'm. I come from the same perspective that you do largely. Um, one of the things that, you know, so we're talking about sustainability and innovation in that space. And we've touched on it a little bit here, but a lot more of what we've been hitting on is a lot of your story, who you are, the perspective, how you built the business. Um, and that's cool. Cause I think it's a great story. Tell me though, around that being that authentic self, that real, real self, like why do you care about 
pressing records in a way that's more sustainable? Is it because it's something that people care about now or is it something about your authentic self? Yeah, I, in general, I have a hard time being motivated by what anybody else cares about. Yeah. Um, so it's not a marketing thing. You don't care no. about that. I mean, I'll be really honest with you and tell you, I'm doing this thing and, and I see, oh, if I tell other people I'm doing this thing, that'll be good. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm not shy about, oh, I don't I make some hay out of this, mm-hmm. but it's not why I would want to do a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't eat a lot of vegetables. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that other people get a lot of great value out of eating vegetables, mm-hmm. but I've never figured out how to like a thing if I don't instantly like it already, mm-hmm. except for reggae. Mm-hmm. I learned how to like reggae and now I really love reggae. I did not see that coming in this conversation, but that's a good, <laughs> that is a good left turn. I like yeah. that. It's, it's the only thing that I've been able to where I, at first I don't think I liked reggae all that much. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden I loved reggae and I hope the vegetables are like that someday <laughs> because I see people eat vegetables and they're really happy. Man, I love vegetables. Yeah, right. I would. I like liking things. Yeah, and I would love to really love Brussels sprouts. Oh man, I love Brussels sprouts. My kid eats Brussels sprouts. So all of that is sort of to say, I want to be able to make records uh-huh. in a way that feels good to me. Yeah, and and. But for me, not it's not because I, I, I love the word zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. So it's not because the spirit of the age right now is pick up that piece of plastic or whatever. It's because I will feel a lot better if my contributions to the world are making it better in as many ways as possible. Okay. Man, that's cool. And I, I feel it's a, a good place to start, you know, wrapping up because first of all, the whole conversation hasn't focused on sustainability and innovation, but it's been, that's been almost like a through line of everything we've been talking about. We've been talking about your, your evolution and how you've kind of always been an innovator. You've been a guy that's like not afraid to take a risk. You want to start a business, you want to try things. And then along the way, the sustainability piece has become more and more important to you, especially as you have a kid. And here we are today, you're in an industry that is kind of traditionally, well, for sure, vinyl records. When we think about vinyl, we just think of history, but you're taking a modern approach to it. And you're not, you're not doing it as a marketing point. It's cool that people like that. And of course it will, it will add to the business, but you're doing it because starting your own business is about being happy for you and doing something that you like doing. And part of that is doing something that, you know, isn't harming. Yeah. Isn't harming the world. And if we're thinking about innovation, we're thinking about sustainability, what better place to start from than that, that we want to feel good about what we do and that what we're doing isn't breaking things down, but it's adding to the experience of not just human beings, but the whole planet. So I I think that's a a great thing. And um, I will say, man, Clampdown's really cool. And I've just absolutely loved this conversation. It's been super fun. Yeah. Um, So if you break into a third place, are you going to let us know or is that going to be like, on the down low. Yeah, I don't have any plans to break in anywhere. Okay, don't soft snitch on yourself. So we don't <laughs> want to do that, but we'll 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 keep in touch on that. All right. So, um thanks so much for being on the show. Any last things you want to add in? Well, one of the things that's on my mind a lot is um sometimes I run into folks that feel like they've been dealt a bad hand or they don't take responsibility for the things that they're doing. 
but it really seems to me important that uh, we have the ability to focus on the things we can control and the things we can control are, are the way we react to our environment. And, and I think that there's some kind of a key in there that, that we are in control of the things we do and say, and even the way we internalize problems, uh, whether we internalize something as a problem or uh, an opportunity. Right on, man. I, I couldn't agree with you more. All right. Well, you know, as we're wrapping up, a theme that I think anyone who listens to the show often is going to pick up is I'm really into hearing about people who just do something that they believe in and they take the risk, they take the leap. And you can do that being in a company, like a large company, and you can do it in a small company and you can do it on your own. At the end of the day, we're only really anchored to the things that we let ourselves be chained to. And I know it might sound a little bit foolishly optimistic to say, hey, you can you can really step out of this prison of kind of historical ways of doing things. But I actually firmly believe you totally can do that. And you can do that in the company you're in. You can do it the industry you're in. You just need to have that great idea and then figure out how to do it in a way that you feel good about. So if we look at Billy's story, historically, this is a person who's been blazing their own trail and has finally landed on the thing where they're like, this makes me happy and I can do it in a way that I think is going to make a difference. And how could you hope for anything more? So that's it for this episode. Uh, this has been one of my favorite ones. I love records. Records are super, super cool. Um, and you know, the bad brains acetate, it's no longer with me. <laughs> unfortunately, okay, yeah. you know, it's no, it's no longer here, but I definitely have a pretty sick record collection. And for anyone here who's like, oh, vinyl records, uh, how do I get into that? It's as easy as going down to a record store and just picking one up, getting a mid-level turntable, even a crappy one, yep. and revisiting that idea of like the feel and the sound of vinyl and the big packaging getting into it. It's a cool world. And now we know that there's uh, a way that it can be done sustainably. So thanks so much. And Dave, drop the beat. That was an incredible conversation. Uh, so thanks so much to Billy for joining us today. You know, what really stood out to me was he's just a unique guy. He's got an incredible story. He started this company and you could feel like his personal charisma and his personal integrity is just in every single part of that company. What was really neat too is, you know, like taking an industry like vinyl that was basically extinct and coming back but doing it in a new way, a way where we're saying like, well, how can we make this sustainable and how can we do it in new ways? That takes a kind of leadership that's very visionary. So I learned a lot today and I was already thinking like, how can I apply Billy's take on things to our business? So for me, this was a really, really interesting, interesting episode and something that I encourage everyone listening, like whatever industry you're in, the rules are not set whatever ways that people have been doing things, they're just doing them because that's the way it's been done. There's no reason that you can't take the script and totally rewrite it. You've just got to take that first step. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time on One Step Beyond. One.